Let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7 this evening. Isaiah chapter 7. This this fall I've been teaching in Pathfinders, so um, if you pay attention tonight, there might be a treat for you at the end. We'll see. You can answer the questions well. Um, This past Sunday, Grace Baptist of Hamtramck celebrated 10 years of... um, of being a church. Pastor Dorn was there to speak for their anniversary. And another couple was there from North Dakota who used to be members of their church. Their names are Derek and Alex Henry. Um, In the summer of 2012, a young couple, Derek Henry, he was 31, and Alexandra Henry, moved to Hamtramck because they wanted to be involved in an urban church plant. They had no connections here, They didn't know a whole lot about what was going on uh, with the place, but they were really encouraged about what kind of ministry that was going on at Hamtramck, and and particularly with Jay Searcy, who they had talked to over the phone, and so they decided to just move, move to Hamtramck. It was pretty neat. So they packed up their belongings, made their trip along with their children, Hezekiah, which means the Lord strengthens, and Israel, the Lord contends. Israel was six months old, and Alex was pregnant with her third, another boy. When they arrived in, Mich- in Michigan, Israel was pretty sickly. He was pretty sickly. He wasn't gaining weight. He had numerous health problems. He wouldn't eat very well. They took him to the doctor several times, uh, giving him supplements. One Sunday, Alex was especially worried about the baby, who is now 11 months old at this time, and she held him and was asking the other ladies in the church, what do I do? And they just said, well, just make sure you, you, you keep her hydrated well. The following Wednesday was October 17th, and Alex stayed home with Israel because he was not doing well. Derek and their older son, Hezekiah, went to church, and Alex called Derek to tell him that, that Israel had gotten worse while Derek was at church. And so he came home immediately They gave him some Pedialyte and put him to bed. The next morning, Israel was not responsive, and so Derek rushed him to the hospital, but it was too late. They had pronounced him dead on arrival on October 18th of 2012. Child Protective Services came in to check on the condition of things in their home because there was an unexplainable death, and initially were very comforting to the now grieving young couple, But as they were doing their investigation, they had some concerns, CPS did. On November 27th, 40 days after Israel died, CPS took Hezekiah from them, their older son. They had determined that the couple had neglected Israel, but they wanted to wait till the medical examiner had given a final report. And when he did, in February of 2013, they determined that the child died because of failure to thrive. Within a few weeks, on February 20th, 2013, Derek and Alex were pleased to welcome another boy into the world, Hoshea, which means God saves. Their joy, however, was mixed with fear because they were expecting that CPS CPS might take him as well. They'd already taken Hezekiah, remember. Sure enough, two days later, on February 22nd, CPS took 
Hoshea from them as well. Two and a half weeks later, on March 11th, Derek and Alex were arrested and charged with first-degree child abuse, a crime that, if convicted, could bring a sentence of anywhere from several years to life in prison. So they were both arrested, placed in jail to await their trial. When the trial began, the judge looked at Derek and said, don't think that your faith in God will deliver you, because it won't. On September 26th, six months and one week later, they were released from jail to await their sentencing, which was set for November 18th, 2013. Alex was convicted of third-degree child abuse, which is the person knowingly or intentionally commits an act that under the circumstances poses an unreasonable risk of harm or injury to a child. And the act results in a physical harm to a child. So she, she ended up with third degree, even though she was charged with first, first degree, the, the final ru- ruling was third degree for her. She was released um, having served her time. Derek, however, was charged with first degree child abuse and sentenced to nine years in a state prison. Alex and their lawyers immediately began working for Derek's freedom and custody of their children. The court told Alex that if she regained custody of the children and then Derek was later released from prison, if they were still married, the children would be taken away from them permanently. And so the court recommended that she, if she wanted to have custody of her children, Derek either needed to be in prison for life or she needed to divorce him. Now, the reason I tell this story is because sometimes we get ourselves backed into a corner in life. Sometimes not because of any fault of their own, like is the case here. They were innocent and actually charged as guilty. And it's at those moments where our faith is really tested. Are we going to trust God and wait for him to resolve what we can't resolve on our own? Or are we going to kind of run out in front of God and try to scheme our way to resolve something and in the process maybe make things worse? Like if Alex decided, you know what, I will get a divorce. I think it's a good thing for me to have the kids. I think people would understand, God would understand perhaps because I'm doing something for them. This is for the good of my kids. Sometimes our schemes actually get us into worse trouble. The harder thing to do, however, is to trust God and wait. That's what's going on here in Isaiah 7 and 8. You remember chapter 6 ended with Isaiah saying, Here am I, send me. And God says, All right, I'm going to send you to people who are ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. They're not going to respond well to you, Isaiah. And so Isaiah's first commission was to the southern tribe of Judah, specifically King Ahaz. And so the question that I think that we should, that I think the text is trying to answer in chapters 7 through 39 is in in whom will Judah trust? 
Where is Judah going to put their confidence, especially when their backs are up against a wall? Are they going to trust God? Are they going to trust the nations? Are they going to trust idols? Are they going to trust their own abilities? In the near context, chapter 7 through 12, I think the question that the text seeks to answer is, will Judah trust God or Assyria? So let me read Isaiah chapter 7. We'll walk through this together. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aaron with e- Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its wall and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it's no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So Isaiah's message to the southern tribe of Judah is to trust God. Simple message. God's word is sufficient. He has given you a promise here. He's going to take care of you if you will seek to just trust him. Now, from a human perspective, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. We're getting all this pressure. That's what he's talking about here in these verses. Uh, Israel and Syria had been forced to become vassals of Assyria, this larger empire. And Israel and Syria wanted to gain independence, so they tried to compel Judah. So you have Israel, the northern tribe, and Syria wanting to compel Judah to come alongside of them so that they can oppose Assyria. But Judah, the southern tribe, to whom Isaiah is talking, they don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to form an alliance with Israel and Syria. And so they use more compelling measures, these two northern nations. Israel and Syria attack Judah and kill 120,000 men in one day, according to 2 Chronicles 28. And they also killed King Ahaz's son. That doesn't really lead, lead Judah to want to make, a, make a, an alliance with them at this point, to kill the king's son. And they also killed two of his closest, closest advisors. Judah was, would not be manipulated. They would not allow this alliance to happen. And so, Israel and Syria took 200,000 of Judah's people captive. So, first they kill 120,000, and then they kill 200, or, or then they capture 200,000 more. 
And Judah still is not going to ally themselves with these other two nations. So what they decide to do, King Ahaz decides, instead of making an alliance with these two nations, why don't I make an alliance with the more powerful nation of Assyria? And that way, these two nations here, Israel and Syria, aren't going to be a problem for me, for us. We're going to be on the the superpowers side, essentially. Ahaz is understandably outraged. How could Israel possibly make an alliance with Syria? And how could you possibly come after us? And so Ahaz is seething in anger and contemplating his next move when Isaiah arrives. And he arrives with a message from God, and his message is in verses 3 through 9. We find Ahaz at the upper end of the water supply. Maybe he's making sure that he's got plenty of water coming into the city. Isaiah comes along with his son, Shear, Jashub, which if you look in the margin of your Bible means a remnant will return. And here's God's message to Ahaz. Don't ally yourself with these nations. Don't worry about them. Don't ally yourself with Assyria Make an alliance with God, because Israel is simply a smoldering firebrand. Look at verse, look at verse three, uh, verse four again. This is God to Isaiah, and say to him, "Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands." That's how God describes Israel and Syria. They're nothing. They're like two smoldering wicks that are about to go out. Just in a matter of time, they're, going to be, they're not going to be pestering you anymore. Can you trust me on this? Can, can you believe that I could actually accomplish that? They're not going to win. God knew that the Syrian king had plans to overtake Judah in verses 5 and 6, but God and his purpose cannot be thwarted. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Their plans are going to be thwarted by God's. God's plans cannot be thwarted. And so, that's kind of the foundation. I've got it all under control. Don't worry about it. Don't don't mess this thing up. Here's your responsibility, verse 9. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. The end of verse 9 says, trust in me. If you trust in me, the, the implication there is, if you trust in me, you will remain firm. But if you don't, you will not last. You will be taken off into exile. In other words, what God is telling them to do is do something that's counterintuitive from a human perspective. We see all the things that are in front of us and we say, we have to fix this. I have to do something. And God's saying, just trust me and wait. I've got this all under control. Can you, can you put your confidence in me? Don't run out in front of me. It may seem like you have to do something here, but don't go up and mess things up for yourself and the nation. God is bigger than these these pests. 
Israel and Syria. And, and of course, the rest of the story is that Ahaz and Judah are quick to run out in front of God and try to scheme their own way to victory. And sadly, they remind us, I would imagine, of ourselves. That sometimes when we are backed into a corner, when we are in a difficult situation, we don't see the end and how this is all going to turn out, our immediate impulse is to go out and try to fix it on our own. Instead of trusting God and then waiting for Him to work, because His timing is often different than ours. Now, don't hear me say that trust is passive, that we need to do nothing, that, that there's no steps of obedience we need to take. Trust is actually very active. It's us putting our confidence in God, believing and following a promise that says, wait for me. Like it was with Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember the story? They were promised a son. And Abraham's response when he first hears the promise is what? Oh, do you mean my servant, Eleazar? Because we're well too old for that. I'm 75, she's 66. This isn't going to happen. So do you mean like I'm going to have like an adopted son through my servant who's part of my household kind of? And God's like, nope, it's coming through you. Coming through you, Abraham. Okay. So 10 years go by. Abraham's in his mid-80s. Sarah's in her mid-70s. And what happens? This promise is supposed to happen. We're supposed to have a son. We're supposed to ha- You're supposed to be the father of many nations. It's not happening, Abraham. Let's take care of this. Let's scheme our way to get what God promised us rather than trusting God and waiting. And what do they do? They make more problems for themselves, essentially. Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham. And they have a son. But no word that this was not the son of promise. There was no, hey Abraham, what are you doing here? Fourteen years later, Abraham is 98 and Sarah is 89. And the Lord... I believe the pre-incarnate Christ comes with a couple of angels to visit them in the tent. And they say, and and the Lord says to him, Abraham, at this time next year, your wife is going to be holding the child that she gives birth to. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. You're trying to get a treat already. Hey, look, I don't have any fruit snacks. That's what I give to the kids. Um, but you are paying attention well. I appreciate that. And you're sitting up straight. Usually kids like have feet in the air at this point of the night. Um, and God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we look at this story with Derek and Alex. We look at some of the difficult situations that we've come to. And we look around going, there's no hope. This cannot turn out well. And so maybe it's okay this one time, maybe it's okay for us to cut corners here, maybe to not obey in this area so that we can get something that's actually good. Was it wrong for Abraham and Sarah to want a son? 
Was it wrong for Ahaz to want peace? No, but they, went, they, they wanted to go about it in their own way and did instead of trusting God and waiting. In chapter 7, verse 10 through chapter 8, verse 10, we see the truth that we all need to remember, which is God is with us. Here, Ahaz has his plan made up. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to make an alliance, a counter-alliance with Assyria. He's going to become, he's going to make Judah a vassal state to Assyria so that now Assyria will, part of the, the agreement is that they'll protect this southern tribe of Judah. But God wanted Ahaz and Judah to trust in him alone, not to scheme their way to some kind of solution. And so, verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. There's no, nothing too big for you to ask. So, ask for something. Ahaz says, oh, please, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It's kind of a false piety type of thing. Gives an impression of deep faith when, in fact, he's filled with unbelief as expressed in his actions prior to and following this. And then a response from the Lord, verse 14, uh, verse 13. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the same time he knows enough to refuse at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will come enough. Uh, to refuse evil, will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. There's a lot of debate over God's reply here in verse 14 through Isaiah. Is God referring to the child that Ahaz's wife will have, that she will give have a child, and that this child will in some way deliver them? Um. Of course, this verse is quoted in the Gospels, in Matthew, other places, and it seems to be a response, fulfillment of a prophecy. I want you to notice here to whom God is speaking. Look at verse 10 again. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now, this verb here, ask a sign, that's, that's in the singular, so he's talking to Ahaz specifically. But notice then in verse 13 that he changes the audience to whom he's speaking. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. It broadens, doesn't it? It's not just to Ahaz. Is it too slight a thing for you? That, that's a plural you, which we can't tell in our English, but the, the Hebrew actually is plural there. For you all to try the patience of men, that you all will try the patience of God as well. So he's taking a step back and saying, okay, I've got something for you. And here it is. Verse 14, a virgin's going to be born. O house of David, there's going to be, or excuse me, a virgin's going to give birth to a child, and that child's name is going to be God with us. Do you want to know how I know, Ahaz, that this is all going to come true? Is that this promise is sure? There's coming a savior, someone who's going to, to, to be God in human flesh. 
before Judah will enjoy the presence of God, according to verse 16, they will be led into captivity. There's going to be humiliation. I'll just kind of breeze through the, the rest of this here. Humiliation, chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. There's going to be devastation, chapter 8, 1 through 4. Swift to the spoil and, and speedy as the prey. It's going to be quick that Assyria comes and licks up Judah. And then there's going to be a, a consolation amidst the trouble in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 8. Verse 6, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin and the son of Remaliah, now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channel and go over it all of its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah and will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. God's saying, you don't have to worry about Assyria. They're going to be taken care of. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to set a flood, send a flood on them. I'm going to use them first to be a judgment to you. But then there's mercy that's coming. And he reminds them of this promise with this, the way he describes them. Oh, Emmanuel, oh, God with us. God has not forsaken you, even in your captivity. The passage finishes here in chapter 8, verses 11 through 23. by showing that, that it is foolish to go our own way. To go our own way is darkness. To follow God is light, and so we must trust Him. The Lord alone can be trusted, should be trusted. Notice verse 12, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that the people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and He shall be your fear. Verse 15, many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Those who trust God believe his word. It's very simple. If we are going to trust God, we take his bare word at face value. We accept it as truth. We don't, we, we're not quick to, to, you know, have a cynical eye or I don't know if that really fits in my circumstance. We're, we're quick to, to follow it. That's for me. But Judah was not trusting God's word. And so God's promise to them is that they were going to experience darkness, distress and darkness, verses 20 through 22. Sometimes it's difficult to trust the bare word of God. So many times we get ourselves into trouble and our first instinct is to hedge ourselves in. I mean, think about how much we in our society are hedged in by, in so many ways. We have so many protections that, that, that few countries have in our, in our globe and also in history. And we have insurances for everything. So no matter what kind of catastrophe could possibly come to us, there's an insurance for it. And we, we kind of hedge ourselves in because we can't allow 
something outside of our control to happen. We have to make sure that we're protected. And so there are times when we get into trouble, sometimes because of our own sin, and we don't see a way out. We don't see that maybe the, you know, I know the next thing is to confess and forsake, but I I don't see that going well. I see all the negative consequences and how that's going to hurt my wife or it's going to hurt my kids or it's going to hurt my church. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay quiet about this. Or it could be from something of no fault of our own. We're, we're backed into a corner because of something someone else did or some difficult catastrophe that's, that we've experienced or something like what's happened to Derek and Alex Henry. And we want to make our own way. But sometimes the best thing to do is simply to trust God and wait. In the early months of 2014, Derek's lawyers were appealing the conviction. The same judge who sentenced him to nine years in prison had been receiving letters from the jurors telling him that they had made a mistake. That they should not have charged him with first-degree child abuse. On March 14th, the judge did something that he said that he had never done before. He reversed his own ruling. Fully exonerated Derek of all charges. Alex called Derek at the Wayne County Prison to tell him the news. Actually, I think he was up at Saginaw by this point. Derek couldn't believe it. He was so surprised that he hung up the phone. It's like you see on TV when somebody comes, they're surprised. Or even in the Bible, right? They kind of close the door because you're so surprised. He couldn't believe what was going on. The next day when they picked him up from prison, the guard said that he had never seen someone released from a level three security prison before. Now, you think the battle is over, they could just go pick up their children, back to life as normal. But it actually would take another nine months before the courts would rule to not terminate their their parental rights. So if their parental rights had been terminated, the boys would have been put up for adoption. The court ruled, after nine more months, that they would not terminate their parental rights, meaning that they would be able to get the boys back. That was December 19, 2014. And you'd think the boys would be, be there, ready for them to take home, but that wasn't it. They had to wait another eight months, July 14, 2015, when they finally would be reunited with their two boys, Hezekiah and Hoshea, who was born just before they were arrested. Hezekiah had been in the system for nearly three years. Baby Hoshea was taken at two days old and was now two and a half years old. Derek and Alex were here this past Sunday, the grace of Hamtramck, to, to testify of God's goodness in the midst of the thorns piercing deeply. And to testify of a church, Grace of Hamtramck, who came near them in a time of trouble. And for seven years, they've been able to testify about this. A book was just written about them. I can't remember the name of it, but just came out a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's got all the details for you. It's not the best writing that you're going to find, but it's, it, it definitely captures the story of God's 
goodness. Not all stories turn out like this. Some Christian parents have their children taken away, never to get them back again. Some Christians are wrongly fired from their job because of of a convictional stand against godlessness. Some Christians are wrongly accused by a court and denied at appeal, only to serve a sentence that they don't deserve. Some Christians experience deep, unimaginable tragedy, loss, leaving a hole that they cannot replace. And yet, even when the story doesn't turn out well in the near term, they, these Christians like Derek and Alex, can still trust in God not move to human schemes to try to run out in front of God and try to correct everything, but rather to trust Him and wait. Maybe you're in a situation like that right now where it just seems like it's hopeless. I mean, how did I get in this position in the first place? I don't deserve this. And maybe you're tempted to think like the judge who said, don't think that your faith in God's going to save you. Maybe you're starting to hear those voices from friends who are saying, where is your God? And your God is right here. All of his promises are true. And even if your life doesn't turn out how you want it to, God is still with you. And he will be with you all the way to the end. And all the promises that he has for you, you will receive. Remember the end of Hebrews 11? They all died without receiving the promise. We don't have promise of peaceful, great lives that are free from troubles, do we? But we do have a promise that in the next life, All of our shame is going to be removed. All of our guilt will have been completely gone. All the troubles that we've experienced will be erased because God is faithful. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's at the times in which life is most difficult when our faith is tested. And we have to determine what we're going to do. Are we going to work hard to seek what is in the Word Find out what is true, what we need to be banking on, or are we going to run out in front of God and try to correct it all on our own? Well, this evening, God promises something great for the people of Judah, that this Emmanuel would come, and he did come. And he died for our sins, and he is the basis for which we can have hope. So let's praise God for his goodness to us, and then we'll uh, pray together in groups after that. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness in bringing us to salvation when we were lost, condemned, enemies, dead. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly. And there's nothing that we could do to repay all that you have done for us. And so we give ourselves to you. The least we can do is offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. And Lord, we admit that there are times when we are tempted and we give in to the temptation 
to scheme our way out of trouble that we're in instead of the hard, slow steps of faithfulness and confidence that we need to have in you. Lord, please strengthen our resolve tonight. Help us to be more trusting in you. As we come to know you more, help us to trust you more. And Lord, for those in here who are going through unimaginable loss even now, who are looking at the future and it's seeming very bleak, looks a lot like the last few weeks or months or years, Lord, give them hope and confidence that the that it will be worth it all. One day, tri life's trials will be over and all tears forever will be passed. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. Lord, help us to keep faithful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.